This evening, I'd like to invite you to turn with me in God's Word first to the book of Ezra, Ezra chapter 1, and then our meditation will be on Haggai chapter 1, and we're going to read the Word of God this evening under the heading of Prioritizing the Temple. Prioritizing the Temple from Ezra chapter 1 and Haggai chapter 1. Let's give our attention now to the reading of God's Word, Ezra chapter 1. Now in the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, the word by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled. The Lord stirred up the spirit of king of Persia, Cyrus, king of Persia, all the kingdoms of the earth, the Lord God of heaven has given me, to build him a house at Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Who is among you of all his people? May his God be with him. And let him go up to Jerusalem, which is in Judah, and build the house of the Lord God of Israel. He is God, which is in Jerusalem. And whoever is left in any place and where he dwells, let the man of his place help him with silver and gold, with goods and livestock, besides the freewill offerings for the house of God, which is in Jerusalem. Then the heads of the fathers' houses of Judah and Benjamin and the priests and the with all whose spirit God had moved, arose to go up and to build the house of the Lord which is in Jerusalem. And those who were around them encouraged them with articles of silver and gold, with goods and livestock, and with precious things besides all that was willingly offered. King Cyrus also brought out the articles of the house of the Lord which Nebuchadnezzar had taken from Jerusalem and put in the temple of his gods. And Cyrus, king of Persia, brought them out by the hand of Mithridath, the treasurer, and counted them out to Sheshbazar, the prince of Judah. This is the number of them, 30 gold platters, 1,000 silver platters, 29 knives, 30 gold basins, 410 silver basins of a similar kind, and 1,000 other articles. All the articles of gold and silver were 5,400. All these Sheshbazar took with the captives who were brought from Babylon to Jerusalem. And then we'll turn also to Haggai chapter 1, which will be our main focus this evening. Haggai chapter 1. Let's give our attention now to the reading of God's Word from Haggai chapter 1. In the second year of King Darius, in the sixth month, on the first day of the month, the word of the Lord came by Haggai the prophet to Zerubbabel, the son of Shelatile, the governor of Judah, and to Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts, saying, This people says, The time has not come, the time that the Lord's house should be built. Then the word of the Lord came by Haggai the prophet, saying, Is it time for you yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses and this temple to lie in ruins? Now therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. You have sown much and bring it. You eat and have enough. You drink, but you are not filled with drink. You clothe yourself. No one is warm, and he who earns wages, earn wages to put into a bag with holes. 
Thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. Go up to the mountains and bring wood and build the temple that I may take pleasure in it and be glorified, says the Lord. You looked for much, but indeed it came to little. And when you brought it home, I blew it away. Why, says the Lord of hosts? Because of my house. Well, and if we, everyone runs to his own Withhold the dew, and the earth withholds its fruit. For I called a drought on the land, and the mountains, on the grain, and the new wine, and the oil, on whatever the ground brings forth, on men, and livestock, and on all the labor of your hands. Then Zerubbabel, the son of Shelatiel, and Joshua, the son of Dak, the high priest, with all the remnant of the people, obeyed the voice of the Lord their God. Haggai the prophet. God had sent him. And the people feared the presence of the Lord. Haggai, the Lord's messenger, spoke the Lord's message to the people, saying, I am with you, says the Lord. The son of Shelatiel, governor of Judah, the spirit of the son of Hosadak, the high priest, and the spirit of all the remnant of the people, and they came and they worked on the house of the Lord of hosts, their God, on the 24th day of the sixth month in the second year of King Darius. This is the word of the Lord. May we receive it with a believing heart. Well, dear congregation, this evening I want to consider with you the prophecy of Haggai. But before we even look at this book, we are met with an immediate challenge. Finding it. At only two chapters, 38 verses, this is often a missed book. But it's an important book that we consider the prophet Haggai's message deals with, in this book, the subject of our priorities. You see, the people of Israel had long been in Babylonian captivity, 70 years where they longed to worship God in the temple. We just sang Psalm 137. A psalm written during the Babylonian captivity that says this, By the waters of Babylon we sat down and wept when we remembered Zion. Zion. The city of Jerusalem. Where the temple was. But what made Zion special is that God dwelt in Jerusalem. What made Zion, Zion, if you will, was the temple. That you could have communion with God. That He dwelt with His people. And so in 1586, when Nebuchadnezzar sieges the city of Jerusalem. And remember it says the temple is burned to the ground in 2 Kings 25. And he took all the bronze ornaments and the silver and the gold and he slaughtered the priests. It's important to remember that as that was taking place, it wasn't just a building falling to the ground. It would have felt in some ways that God Himself had been destroyed. 
that he had failed. Or that the Jewish religion had failed. And so a major theme of the time of exile, we read in the book of Ezra, we read in the book of Haggai, Psalm 137, is that the people want to leave Babylon not just because they're oppressed, but because they want to worship the Lord in Zion again. And what did we read in Ezra 1? That God mercifully hears their prayer. And he moves the heart of Cyrus to allow them to return home. And they return home with gold and silver and money and flocks. It says in Ezra chapter 1, verse 2, then that they went to their homeland for the purpose of rebuilding the temple. Cyrus makes that very clear. So we think that as we read this, this should have been the exile's joy. They should be ecstatic. We're going to Zion. We're going back to the house of God. We can worship God aright. But then we come to Haggai. And what do we see? Their hearts have become apathetic. That in the course of history, over 17 years, they had become indifferent to the things of God. 17 years after their return from exile, the temple is still not rebuilt. And so the Lord raises up a prophet, Haggai. And prophet, this is our, a prophet who, and this is our theme this evening, who gives a trumpet sound, if you will. He gives a call to prioritize the Lord in restoring His house. A call to prioritize the Lord in restoring His house. We want to see this in three points. We want to see complacent builders in verses 1 through 2, selfish builders in verses 3 through 11, and obedient builders in verses 12 through 15. That's complacent builders, selfish builders, and then obedient builders. First, let's give our attention to seeing their complacency here in those first two verses. What we see here is that the exiles who returned home to Israel were not prioritizing the Lord, and so God raised up a prophet. And we see in verse 1, his name is Haggai. Of Haggai, we actually know very little. His name means of the feast days, which is somewhat fitting because he would have likely given these prophecies during the month of August, which is one of the major times of the feast. But other than that, this book records almost nothing of his history or his personal experiences. In fact, Ezra, the book of Ezra, tells more about Haggai than the book of Haggai speaks of Haggai. What we learn in the book of Ezra, in fact, in chapter 5 and chapter 6, is that he is a leading figure in the post-exilic Reformation. But one of the most interesting things about the prophet Haggai is he, he must have been an accountant of some sort or somebody who was very meticulously interested in facts because we see in Haggai, he meticulously dates 
every single one of his sermons. You see this if you have a Bible in front of you. In chapter 1, verse 1, it's dated in the second year of King Darius, in the sixth month of the first day of the month. But then he also dates the rest of his sermons in chapter 2, verse 1, and chapter 2, verse 10, or 2, verse 20. Each time he gives you the date before he gives you the prophecy. And this is important because it gives us a context to the prophecies that are contained in this book. Haggai's first sermon, which we're looking at today, occurs 17 years after the people of Israel had returned from Babylon. 17 years. The reader is supposed to read verse 1. See the date and say, what happened? What could be so important that you would delay serving the Lord, the work of God, for so long? And as we read through the book of Ezra, we find out that even though they were allowed to return home, they weren't necessarily a sovereign nation. They were still under King Cyrus, under the authority of their captors. And after the first, after Cyrus dies, another king is risen up. And he, we read in Ezra 4, verse 6, orders that the work in the temple be stopped. And then the next king after him, Ezra 4, 21, does the same thing. Orders that the work of the temple be stopped. And before you know it, for 14 years, the temple is laid in ruins. And we know what this is like. If you've ever had the good pleasure of serving on a committee, maybe in this church or on another board. And what happens when you have a good thing that you want to do and it's been tabled? Maybe one month, two months, three months. And so often our zeal for that good thing dies, doesn't it? See, the problem that Haggai is addressing is that external circumstances out of their control had stopped them from doing what God wanted them to do. But now the zeal for the good thing has grown cold in the hearts of the people. You know, as we read Haggai 1, it doesn't seem to me that the people do not love God. It doesn't seem to me that they don't care about the temple. What I think the impression we're supposed to have from Haggai 1 is this, that the circumstances of their life has so discouraged them, has so beaten them down, that they no longer prioritize the things of the Lord. Think about it like this. After being exiled for 70 years, they return home to a ruined city. An impoverished land, a burnt temple. And as soon as they resume, they're attacked by the Samaritans. Cyrus the Persian king, who loves the Israelite, he dies. Two successive kings arrest their work. They're discouraged. And after years of discouragement, they no longer have a heart for the work of the Lord. 
We have a wonderful example here then of what discouragement often does to us. Discouragement often leads to complacency. Now here is why the date is so important. I mentioned there's two kings after Cyrus who prohibited the Jews from rebuilding the temple. These are real tongue twisters, so excuse me if I get the names wrong. With the first king, his name was Ahasuerus, and the second king's name was Artaxerxes. These two kings stopped the work of the temple. But look at the king who is mentioned in verse 1. Not Ahasuerus, not Artaxerxes, but Darius. Meaning there's a new king. A king who has not prohibited them from rebuilding the temple. In fact, it is said in the book of Ezra that when he found the original decree of Cyrus, he reissued the decree. He encouraged his people, or the people of Israel, excuse me, to rebuild the temple of the Lord. And for two and a half years of having the freedom to serve the Lord again, in rebuilding his house. There's no saws whirring. No hammers ringing. We see that the people no longer prioritized the temple of the Lord. So do you know what happens when we no longer prioritize the work of the Lord in our own lives? We see it all throughout the Old Testament. We see it in the person of Saul, the person of David, Solomon's life, that when we don't have our priorities straight, it leads to alienation with God. Look at verse 2 with me, if you will. Thus speaks the Lord of hosts, saying, look at these words, this people says, this people, not my people which is the common designation for the people that God is in covenant with. But this people, you can almost hear the disappointment in the voice of God. This people have excuses. And as we read through the Old Testament history, we might say, well, they had valid reasons. Lord, there was opposition to your work. The cost was too great. It's been so long. We've been busy. We've been discouraged. Which sound like legitimate excuses. But look what the Lord says in verse 2. This people says, the time has not come. The time that the Lord's house should be built. What is he saying? The Lord's saying the real cause of the delay is you. Israel, your hearts are cold to me. I am not the priority. Discouragement has led them to complacency. Congregation, a word of application here as we've looked at the complacent builders. Isn't it interesting that the longer the Jews went without the temple, the longer they went without the sacrifices and the ceremonies and the priesthood, the less they felt their need for him. 
Likewise, the longer a Christian goes without seeking God, the less we desire Him. As some of you may have heard the term, maybe you younger folks aren't as familiar with it, but you've heard the term, absence makes the heart grow fond. Absence from the presence of the Lord does not make the heart grow fonder. Here we're seeing that absence from the Lord makes the heart grow colder. Though the church may sometimes not feel the nearness of God, we must pursue the nearness of God. Sometimes we have to perform, if you will, our religious calling. The calling of seeking God in His Word. Seeking God in prayer. Because it's our duty. But let us never be so discouraged to not believe that He won't change this duty into delight. God so often uses ordinary means. The ordinary means of seeking His face to produce in us a delight for Him. So I want to encourage you this evening. Keep Pressing in to the Lord. Keep seeking the face of God. And so often His Holy Spirit will come alongside us and bless us. And He does change the duty to delight. We've seen complacent builders, but we see that the Lord also wants to highlight that not only have they been complacent, but they've also been selfish. The Lord, through the prophet, makes his point apparent by comparing the ruined state of his temple to the rather luxurious state of their homes. In verse 2, the Lord calls his house unbuilt. But in verses 4 and 9, he makes it very clear it's not just unbuilt, but it's actually in shambles. It's in ruins. Verse 4, and this temple lies in ruins. Verse 2. 9, it says, because of my house that is in ruins. While their homes, look at verse 4, are paneled. The word for panels in Hebrew is the same word used in 1 Kings chapter 6, verse 9, which speak of the glory of Solomon's temple. It was paneled. As well as 2 Kings 7 and Jeremiah 22 when it's describing the magnificence of the palace. They were paneled. And so when the Lord says in verse 4, my house is in ruins, but your house is paneled, it seems to suggest at least for some that they were living in luxury. They were living in excess. Well, God's house was in ruin. I think the point is here, it point here is clear, rather than articulating their faith by erecting a place where God can dwell among them, these are builders who are concerned for their own well-being. The time for the Lord, the time to serve had not yet come. They needed that time for their own interests. They were being Selfish builders. So the Lord says in verse 5, Consider your ways. The Hebrew could be translated here as, Set your heart 
upon your ways. Look into your heart. What does selfishness get you? We all know selfish people who are only concerned with more money, more possessions, more pleasures. What does it get them? Well, you may have a lot of things. You may have a lot of stuff. But you don't have any contentment. Here the prophet gives four examples of being selfish, but it being futile. You've, he says in verse 6, sown much and bring in little. You eat, but you do not have enough. You drink, but you are not filled with drink. You clothe yourselves, but no one is warm. And he who earns wages, earns wages to put into a bag with holes. Whether this is happening literally or metaphorically is not the point. What the Lord is saying here is that for the selfish person, enough is never enough. If your priority is yourself, you will never be satisfied. You will never have contentment. And you will never have the blessing of Almighty God. A famous example of this is one of the richest Americans who ever lived. John Rockefeller, who in 1937 was estimated, his estimated value was at $1.4 billion. Once he was asked by a reporter, how much money will it take to make you happy? Do you remember his response? Just one more dollar. Just one more dollar. I'm sure he had Fancy cars, tasty foods, expensive clothes. But what do those things equate to here in 2023? What has it gotten him? They don't have lasting value. Those cars are rusted. Those foods are dust. His clothes are moth-eaten. The Lord is teaching us here that if you live for yourself, you will have no lasting value contentment. He says, consider your ways. But then he says in verse 7, again, consider your way. I think you could translate this as maybe consider this way. Consider your ways, but now consider this ways. Look into your heart. And verse 8 is really the center. It's the heartbeat of this passage where it says, Go up into the mountains and bring wood and build the temple that I may take pleasure in it and be glorified, says the Lord. The passage very strikingly reveals why God was displeased with them. He wasn't displeased because they had a nice house. He wasn't displeased that their enemies caused so much disruption in the work. He was displeased because they didn't seek to please Him. They didn't seek to glorify Him. They didn't live for Him, if you will. See, something that's lost on us in the passage of time, congregation, is the importance of the temple. Why does He even care about the temple? He's the God of heaven. He exists in all places. 
Especially when we're looking back on the New Testament and it says in Acts 7 that God has even said not to dwell in temples made with hands. Even in the Old Testament, the Lord seems to suggest through His prophets and His people that the temple was of no great importance to Him personally. So why does He care? Listen to what John Calvin says here. I think he hits the nail on the head. He says, the visible temple preserved the hope of the future Messiah. The temple preserved their hope in the future Messiah. It was there to point them to their heavenly home. It was the way to heaven through the Lord Jesus Christ. To worship God for His salvation, not only from Egypt, not only from Babylon, not only from Persia, but salvation from sins, congregation. The temple, the sacrifices, the priesthood all pointed to a true temple, a true sacrifice, a true priest who offers salvation in Himself, the Lord Jesus Christ. It's as if the Lord was saying here, if you knew the sacrifice that I make for you in Jesus Christ, then you would seek to please and glorify the Lord. It's a lack of gratitude. A lack of love. that They would pursue their own selfish desires over His pleasure and His glory. And so the prophet says, in verses 9 through 11, that God did not bless them in their selfishness. He says, When you brought home the harvest, verse 9, I blew it away. Verse 10, Therefore the heavens above you withhold the dew, and the earth withholds its fruit. For I called for a drought on the land and on the mountains, on the grain and the new wine and the oil, on whatever the ground brings forth, on men and livestock and on all the labor of your hands. You see, congregation, not only does a selfish life not lead to contentment, but a life lived for yourself doesn't even live, or doesn't even equate, excuse me, to earthly prosperity. Of course, there are rich people who are quite selfish. But my point is this. You are not rich if the stock market crashes and your wealth can be stolen. You are not rich if an earthly death can take everything. You are not rich if all that you consider to be riches will be useless in a thousand years. One needs to store up treasure that cannot be stolen. We need to store up treasure that cannot be destroyed in heaven. A word of application here, my dear friends. We need to consider our own hearts this evening. I know, we know, that often we are prone to put off God. Aren't we prone to put off religion till we have the energy to give 
religion to the Lord, to give ourselves to the Lord, we are often willing to give God the scraps of our day. The scraps of our energy and our lives. This was a big thing when I was a young lad in Canada. You may have noticed I say house differently than you. I heard a lot when I was a kid. It's not the time to serve the Lord because it's hockey season. Are you saying, congregation, I, it's not the time to serve the Lord. I'm too young. My work demands too much of me. Consider, whatever it is this day, if God has the priority in your life. And remember that God is glorified when His people put Him first in their lives. He blesses obedience. Disobedience to God, even when we live for ourselves, only leads to disappointment. The way to a true life, a blessed life, a satisfied life, is to live for the Lord. You know who knew this? The builders who responded to Haggai's message. It doesn't leave us on a note of selfishness, but he reveals through the prophet Haggai in verses 12 through 15 the obedient builder. Solomon was one who prayed at the dedication of the first temple, which Nebuchadnezzar burned to the ground. He said this in 1 Kings 8 Listen to the prayer that your servant offers toward this place, and listen to the plea of your servant and of your people, Israel. When they pray towards this place, and listen in heaven, your dwelling place, and when you hear, forgive. Zerubbabel, Joshua, and the people respond to the sermon of Haggai, and they believe this promise, and they repent, and they ask for forgiveness. And notice in verse 12 what it says it says that they feared the Lord. The people feared presence of the Lord. Now, younger people who are here, you may not know, but that word feared doesn't mean afraid. It means they received Haggai's word with honor and respect, as if it was God's word himself. And furthermore, twice in verse 12, notice their confidence It says, with all the remnant of the people, they obeyed the voice of the Lord, their God. And the words of Haggai the prophet, as the Lord, their God. God, remember at the beginning of this chapter, He couldn't call them my people. But what we're seeing in verse 12 is they are in a sense grabbing hold onto God. They, like Jacob, are wrestling with the Lord. I will not let you go until you bless me, Lord. My sin may have led to alienation, but I am coming to you, Lord, and I am laying hold of you, and I will not let you go. Claiming Him as their own. Is God happy? When his people seek him? When they seek his face? 
Look at what the Lord's response in verse 13. I am with you, says the Lord. The change of tone from verse 2 to verse 13 is almost overwhelming. They haven't even begun to work. They don't have the scaffolding up on this temple. There isn't a tool in the tool belt, if you will. But as soon as their hearts turn towards the Lord, the stern and disapproving tone of verse 2 is changed to tenderness and compassion and love. The Lord hastened to forget their unfaithfulness and to comfort them that he is not going to be with them. He is already with them. What a beautiful lesson for us here today as well, isn't it? That our salvation is not dependent upon what we can bring to the Lord Jesus. Our salvation is not based on our talents, our finances, our whatever it may be. All that we need to bring is a broken and contrite heart, as David says. This, O God, he does not despise. And then having received this word of comfort, we see the end of chapter 1. The Lord immediately stirs their heart to work in the rebuilding of this temple. Congregation, which this passage teaches us is that though God invites all to his service, none of us are exempted from serving him. Men, women, boys and girls, what, in what ways is God calling you to serve him? Obviously, there are no walls uh, that need to be built here. I think the roof is in good condition. But the kingdom of God must be built in our lives. It needs to be built in our homes, in our families, in our churches, in our communities. How can you serve the Lord? I pray that God would give you the grace to show you and to lead you where he needs you. Let's conclude this evening. God has shown us that complacency and selfishness are not the way to blessedness. Seeking his face and the hope in Christ is. The temple prefigured his body. The sacrifices prefigured his cross. The priesthood prefigured his work. And Christ has come that God would accept sinners by his grace. And God is willing and gracious to meet the wanderer even before we can labor for his service. God pronounces, I am with you. Hear this call this evening, congregation, to prioritize the Lord in serving Him here and your families, in your communities, and in your life. Amen. Let us pray. Merciful Father, we do give you thanks for your word that you have shown us the complacency and the selfishness of our own hearts, but yet, Lord, you have not left us there, but you have comforted us with the words of 
God Himself, that You are with us. I pray for this congregation here, that Lord, You have called out of this world to serve You here as members of Sovereign Grace, United Reformed Church. Lord, bless them. Pray that You would stir their hearts to serve You in whatever way that You have called them. Father, we pray that you would be honored and glorified through us, your servants, in Christ's name. Amen.